Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Transcendence Podcast. I'm G.O.D. And I'm Ray. And we're your hosts. Take a journey with us into the realms of some of humanity's most inner thoughts and theories about what lies before us and beyond the other side. Take a step back with us from the day-to-day heavy burdens of this constant evolving life. From awakening the collective, astrology, the spiritual divine, holistic health, shamanism, and quantum theory, to the frequencies and vibrations of our universe, history, religion, numerology, and so much more. We spend countless hours researching to bring you the breakdown of information from some of the greatest minds in these fields and even our own experiences. We're here to challenge your thoughts so that you can reshape your own minds and beliefs into ones that better serve you. We hope you enjoy the discussions about the supernatural and the ancient knowledge that we have become so fond of and we wish to share with you so that it may also help you on your quest in this human experience we're living. Let the transcendence begin. Godspeed and share on. Like and subscribe to The Daily Transcendence on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. To show support for the show, we ask you to join us on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Patreon, and YouTube. There you can find more content, updates on new episodes, and more personal interactions from both Gio and I. We want to hear from you all and connect, so message us or email us at thedailytranscendence at gmail.com. As always, we entirely appreciate your support in allowing us to bring you this transmission. Welcome back, fellow Transcenders, to another exciting and eye-opening episode of Season 2, Mysteries of the Anunnaki. Alongside me, as always, Raymon. That's right. And we're back. And we're back here to further go into the wonderful explanation of these mysterious ancient uh, civilization and um, the so-called Anunnaki. Or the gods. Yeah. The gods that potentially could have, you know, been the reason why we exist. The p- real parents of human society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of multiple, multiple meanings and uh, depictions and so much. And we've gone over that. Um, but before we start, there's something I want to mention along with what we're going into with this series being that we're exploring and talking possibilities because it's really relevant, I think, um, with some of the issues we're facing today. Uh, At the moment of recording this today, it is basically the one-year mark since the world and society has gone under some major changes with the whole CV thing, lockdown, political and social issues. And we've all experienced limitations in one form or another with everything that has gone on. I feel going into this segment of opening the realms of possibility in our universal and human history is a great reminder to overcome the limitations we face in everyday life. There's so much to think about and further look into and understand when it comes to ourselves and our abilities. And we need to do just that. Think. We need to think a little bit. Use our minds and our hearts and our intuition without fear and stop letting other people or systems tell us how we should think or feel. With certain liberty li, uh, liberties being limited to us more and more nowadays, 
the only real freedom we have with certainty is within our own minds and hearts. And I just feel like sometimes we hold ourselves back from that because we get so caught up in the outside world. It's time we start bringing back that childlike nature and imagination and not fall into the sluggish mold of society all the time. Think and view the world in a new and improved perspective with your own free will. And do so without judgment or bias either. See possibility and opportunity, not difficulty and inadequacy. You don't have to try and change the world, but you can change your own world. All it takes is to stop over-processing situations and instead feeling trusting yourself and living in the moment and embracing the unknown instead of straying away from it or being scared of it. There's so much beauty to be experienced in life. And when we do things like this and even going into these types of discussions, it opens up a whole new world of excitement. And I feel like the energies are shifting greatly in favor of doing this right now during this time. I mean, um, going into the astrology, like, there's there's a lot there's a we we've have we have a big you know energy shift that's that's in the works right now yeah man the energy's been going crazy for almost a decade yeah we did just go through 2012 when we went through that that marker in time that was the time of the shift that was the shift of the ages and i think it was it was a shift of consciousness but we did have to go through a elongated period of time of suffering and letting go of a lot of things. And I, I think now, especially what the sky's starting to say is we're, we're in the middle of it. We're at the peak. You know, if you really look at the world, you look at the financial system, you look at uh, just even the way people think, uh, the, the groups developed around the world, the split, you know, red or blue, all of that stuff is, is very loud and it's very noticeable. And especially with these nodes, I always talk about the nodes because they're the most prominent thing. You know, it's time to change your environment. It's time to change uh, you know, who, who you're around and what you're doing and who you are, or at least understand who you are. So you could actually jump on the real path, you know? So yeah, the, the, the plenty of, uh, plenty of transits going on. And uh, you know, we really want to start getting in depth with, uh, with, with talking about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, there's, there's quite a few and it's true, man. I feel like, I feel like there's like, uh, you know, the old logic that we've been able to use in the past before all this, like, it feels like that's like, collapsing and it's like it's it could be leaving people feeling dumbfounded and just kind of like the normal things that you'd be able to just use everyday normal thinking doesn't apply anymore in this day and age and it's pretty crazy and yeah like the the astrology i mean just to mention a few things we had mars move into gemini when it was in the relaxed slow taurus and did not like to be there um, the Mars I felt that one. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, then all of a sudden it moves into Gemini and it's like, boom, okay, action go. And you know, on top of the North node and it's like starting to pick up a little speed, not right away though. I feel like I kind of feel like it was like a gradual inc incline and that we're kind of seeing now, like coming into this week, going more towards the end of the week and then definitely into next week with all the, um, with, uh, you know, the sun and Venus in coming into Aries. I mean, we had the moon in Aries as well. Um, well, we have the astrological new year. Yeah. Yeah. I you know, and usually yeah. around this time, if you've ever noticed throughout the years, like for anybody, if you're highly aware of certain seasons and certain times a year, you notice you go through very similar mindsets through each and a winter being very prominent where a lot of people get to the, the, uh, the seasonal depression, right? They get seasonal depression. And, and it seems to me that like, you know, times of year does affect certain people in a certain way. And I, I think that does really, ha that has a lot to do with all of the transits of the sun. You know, mm -hmm. like uh, I would say like between February and March, 
I always go through a certain type of feeling and vibe. And I've been analyzing that for years now, just at certain points of the year, I feel a certain way. And I do, I believe it's because the, you know, the solar energy, the focus, the mm-hmm. what's being shined upon and what, what it says in the sky. Yeah. That's what being, that, that's affects me completely different every, well, the same every year, but I, I tend to have, you know, uh, especially with all the, all the evolution of, of astrology the past five years alone, I've noticed that there's this climb going on and it's every year, everything gets a little more intense. And that's what I mean. We're mm-hmm. in the middle of this. We're, we're at this peak and yeah. uh, it's, it's only going to get say, I don't want to say worse, but it's only going to get more intense until we really discover uh, our purpose and what we're here for. And it's going to take getting rid of all the old systems and all that. And the, and the sky says so. Yeah, so. definitely. And especially compared to this time last year, like it just, you know, now it just feels more of like the sense of like, okay, we've been there, we've done that. And now it's kind of like, you know, moving forward, you know, how are we going to make up for that lost time? How are we going, if, you know, if, if you weren't productive in a way, which I know is hard for a lot of people to be productive and a lot of people went through some struggling times. Well, but productive could be just figuring yourself out. Yeah, that's it. Having some time with yourself and really just being, uh, you know, comfortable in your own skin and, uh, and, and being able to enjoy the, the simplicities that you have and to be appreciative and have gratitude. So I definitely, I definitely feel that this time around, it's a great opportunity for that. Um, I mean, mentioning the astrology again, uh, the, like the only thing we got coming right now is that whole, um, Mercury and Pisces. And as much as that is not really an ideal thing, uh, I guess you could say it, it does have this sense of trying to be more, um, uh, you know, th- you're not thinking so much on a logical level and, and and trying to think things out like normal mercurial energy would be. It's more so of like an intuition following your gut. And if you are not really in line with, uh, with your emotions, if you're not in line with, you know, your beliefs or that there's just things that are not serving you in that way. And you're trying to figure out it on a, on a real organized pen paper type of way. It's, it might come out to be confusing. Yeah. And for a lot of you out there that may not know, uh, you know, what we mean by that is when you, you know, you analyze where mercury is, mercury rules the minds of everybody, Mm -hmm. you know, in your chart, you have a mercury sign and that's going to give a lot about how your brain works, how your mind works, you know, the processing system in your brain Mm -hmm. and, uh, rules Gemini and Virgo, two very brainy signs. And the thing is, is when it's sitting in a sign like Pisces, Pisces is a water sign and which would be emotional and also a spiritual sign. Mm -hmm. And so when you put the mind, which is logic, it wants logic, it wants A to Z, it wants to know things in a sign that's ruled by Neptune, very dreamy, very uh, fantasy-based, illusionary. Watered down. It's, it, it, would tell, it would tell the story of us having to kind of tap into that imaginative side to get to the logic. It's like a paradox, mm-hmm. but that's how you do it. You, you jump out of your logic. It, it, it kind of put it in a way where you, it's meditation, meditation on the things that it is that you desire right now or the, or the things that have come up maybe in, in more of a traumatic way, you know, mm-hmm. things that come up from the past or things that come up that you had an issue with, um, not just in the past year, but uh, your whole life. And this is a time to reflect on that. Mm-hmm. And that's how you would take the chart for today like that. You, you know, Mercury is a big uh, part of our lives every day because it moves so quick and it moves with the sun. So 
it's why our minds tend to shift throughout the year. Mm -hmm. I believe that's a huge part between the sun and Mercury. Yeah, definitely. And that's, that's definitely a little, um, hermetic way of, of, of looking at things and, you know, that, and the reason why we bring it up is because, you know, it goes along with even what we're going into and what we're talking about, like I said, opening up realms of possibilities and, and thinking things in a little bit more of a different aspect than, than we normally would, or from what we've been taught, taught and stuff. Um, and, and to come into it with, with more of, uh, you know, what feels, what feels right. What, what, what kind of can we take from this and, uh, and being able to rewrite, rewrite the story this time around. So in our previous episode, we spoke about the ancient Sumerian civilization, their religions, teachings, and the mark that they left on human ra- the human race. And that brings many speculations of our origins. We explored the tablets uh, they left behind and the stories of the Enuma Elish, as well as the Atrahasis and how they speak of this entire creation story. We broke down the many translations describing the gods and the correlations to the planets in our universe and how that all could have come about. There were many mentionings of the celestial body or God called Nibiru or Marduk and the many mysteries surrounding its true meaning. What is it? We speculated on the descriptions of it taking on the role of a higher dimensional being, uh, a God and even a planet. So now... If we can see how it's a planet or some sort of cosmic occurrence, what sort of evidence can support that theory? Is the evidence even valid? What are other um, historians, theologians, archaeologists, scientists, and astronomers saying about the possible planet called Nibiru, Planet X, Planet 9, or the 12th planet? And what more do the Sumerian epics say about this figure? In this episode... We're going to present the data and discuss the information that has gathered over the years of this so-called planet and the controversy surrounding it. We also will tell the story of the Anunnaki conflicts within their abode of this planet as described in the ancient Sumerian tablets and how it leads to the discovery of our planet Earth. And then later, we'll show how the tablets all tie into the creation of humanity from these events, along with the relation uh, the relations of other religious teachings and ancient records. I know that this is a big topic in the truth community and conspiracy community where, you know, a lot of people do think that this is an actual planet, uh, that it's going to return and it has this alien race on it. Uh, this is a very, you know, watered down version, but that's basically the gist. Uh, if we would consider it an actual physical object and people have been waiting for this thing to return, like the return of Christ, in some theory, some people consider it the return of Christ. Uh, you know, uh, it's so many different variations of it have come out, like like everything else. And, you know, our, our aim, our aim, is to kind of break each down, to each theory down to kind of give you the option to want, not only do your own research, but to hear things out. And uh, we, we've done a lot of it for you. Uh, mm. Zechariah Sitchin, he described Nibiru... Um, according to the Sumerian cosmology, as the 12th planet, uh, that it was a home to an alien race called the Anunnaki, and they were an extreme advanced civilization where supposedly we had got our language and math and astronomy and all that other stuff. Um, Now, we've also talked about it as a giant planet with with an extreme strange orbit that goes around our sun, so it could possibly be, say, somewhat part of our solar system or at least goes through it. 
Hmm. Now, the word Nibiru, uh, it's actually a term in the Akkadian language. And what it translates to is crossing or point of transition. And that's due to the way it, uh, the orbit. Uh, Nibiru was considered to be, but when it, if we put it in planetary form, it's considered to have a story of colliding with the Earth. And when we went over the story in the other episode about Marduk and Tiamat, that's basically, if you were to say that it was an allegory and it wasn't an actual physical story, mm-hmm. that it was a mythology, that the collision of the Earth was Nibiru, or one of its moons, mm-hmm. had hit the Earth. And that was the whole creation of, or well, the defeat of Tiamat, which mm-hmm. was the mother of the gods. Um, I wanted to clear this up because there's so many names and I know that people get yeah. very confused. Uh, I said Nibiru, you obviously have that and that coming from the Akkadian language. Planet X actually comes from number 10 in Roman numbers. Yeah. Um, and comes from being the 10th planet after Pluto. Now, when people call it Planet 9, they call it uh, Planet 9 due to the fact that Pluto wasn't a planet. Yeah. So there's there's various various amounts of names. They come from many different areas. Uh, mainly, we'll just stick with Nibiru in the in the episode. But um, but yeah. So we we really want to get down to it. Is it mm. a mythology? Is it a real planet? And if it if it is a real planet, are there aliens or an alien race, our so called creators, the Anunnaki, inhabiting it and coming yeah. back? Yeah, exactly. And so we want to go on a little bit of the, you know, more of the description of it um, as we progress into looking at all the evidence or data about it. Um, And we said that Nibiru was said to be the home of the Anunnaki race. And uh, like Ray said, uh, Nibiru as a planet or a star is often named Marduk in the Anuma Lish, but also is referred to as a god. Marduk is said to be born from Ea and Damkina who is sometimes referred as as the uh, the great queen or goddess of nature. This is also something that's really confusing in the Babylonian epic, though, because nowhere in the Enuma Lish is it told where Domkina comes from, but you do get some backstory when looking at other ancient Mesopotamian tablets. Not only that, in the name Domkina, you have Ki, and we know that in the story, Ki tends to be uh, uh, Earth. Uh, so... From the planetary perspective, it is possible that she can be representing the vacuum of space and that Marduk, which, like I said, Marduk is Nibiru. So just keep that in mind. Uh, It said that Marduk was pulled from the womb of space by the gravity of our solar system and into the system passing Neptune, essentially becoming Ea's son because Ea is Anki and we know Anki to be possibly Neptune, you know, uh, the god of water and all that, Poseidon. So it's said that Nibiru is larger than the size of Earth and about the size of Neptune and has an elongated orbit. Its orbital period has been widely debated, but it is said to be about 3,600 years to fully orbit, although there are claims that it has up to about 10,000 years. Uh, Stitchin described the orbit through our solar system as a great event that would affect the orbit of the other planets and cause great earthquakes and such. Uh, Some theories do suggest that this planet could have come in our solar system to begin with when its own local star exploded and it careened off into space. Uh, So the tablets describe Nibiru as being abundant in iron oxide, which causes its rivers and lakes to appear red along with having great volcanic activity. 
We mentioned in the previous episode how in the story it is said that Nibiru, um, it, uh, well, Marduk, when it comes to more of looking at it as a god. Yeah, you know, I'll just say it right now so uh-huh. we can clear it. Marduk, yeah. when he says Marduk, it's the character in the story. Yes. And Nibiru will be the character, but as the planet. Yes, exactly. So it is said that Marduk um, received four wins from Anu, and which we said in the previous episode that Anu uh, represented Uranus. From the planetary aspect, that can be seen as the planet uh, Nibiru entangling with Uranus and its orbit um, or vice versa and obtaining four asteroids or moon-like objects and thus leaving Uranus with a tilt on its axis that we can see today. According to the tablets, Nibiru's atmosphere began to deteriorate and became a hostile place for life. So it's said in the story. Later in the episode, we'll go further into the tablets and explain the story uh, that was told about the Anunnaki plan to deal with the problems. But for now, let's take time to focus on the possibility of this so-called planet and what kind of evidence supports or debunks its existence. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to throw this in there that I feel like you could take this story and it's like anything else that we've researched so far is you can see things being real and then see things playing a very prominent mythology. Hmm. Now I've heard numerous accounts of people saying that the Bible and all these ancient writings do have parts where they are literal physical things. And then there are also things that happen within the body or with through the constellations. Hmm. So there's this ongoing pattern of these ancient stories having these parallels with actual things happening with planets and even actual things going on in the body. And they, that may not sound, you know, even not possible, but it may not sound, uh, you know, correct to say that happens in the body. How could it happen in the body? Well, we've stated many times as above, so below that as everything goes on in the sky, your body is like a miniature universe and that could, that could go on inside of you as well. Whether we know, it's, and we know that to be true. Right, and definitely true. So reflecting each other, taking this story and understanding that you, like you can't discredit one or the other, I think there's a mix and mesh of having real things have, hap- have had happen and then also other things that are not real, and that's what needs to be siphoned through. That's, that's, that's what needs to be figured out. Yeah, there's, pretty, there's a lot of interesting uh, stuff when you look back. Um, so uh, with that, let's start at the beginning to understand how the long line discovery of our universe helped transpire the search for this ninth planet or celestial body. Let's go back to the year 1781 when Uranus was first discovered by Herschel. When he discovered it, he, imi- he immediately realized that the star that was slowly crossing the sky was actually imaged many times before. It was the matter of going through old observations and retracing the orbit that Uranus was following in the sky, and it was seen that there was a problem with the orbit of this newly discovered planet. Through observations, it was shown that Uranus was deviating from where it was supposed to be traveling according to calculations. But in 1820, French astronomer Alexis Bouvard almost became the second person in human history to discover a planet. He had been tracking the position of Uranus across the sky using old star catalogs and it didn't quite uh, go around the sun the way his prediction said it would according to the calculations. At times it was a little bit too fast, other times it was a little bit too slow. So he knew his calculations were perfect, 
So this could only mean that the star catalogs were bad. Uh, He told the astronomers of that day to do better on these catalogs and come back with the the appropriate information. So astronomers did just that and spent two decades meticulously tracking the position of Uranus uh, across the sky, but it still didn't fit Bouvard's predictions. By 1840, it became clear that the problem was not with the star catalogs. The problem was with the the predictions. And astronomers knew why. They realized there must be a distant giant planet just beyond the orbit of Uranus that was tugging along that at that orbit, sometimes pulling along it a bit too fast and other times holding it back. They even theorized that the sun could have a small dwarf star, um, which they called Nemesis, which could also cause the gravitational anomalies they were witnessing. So they found the effect of this distant giant planet that was causing this anomaly, but they just could not find the planet or how to find the planet. But by 1846, another French astronomer by the name of Urban Leverrier, I'm not French, so I can't pronounce it, uh, (laughs) worked through the math and he figured out how to predict the location of the planet. He he sent his prediction to the Berlin uh, Observatory and they opened up their telescope and on the very first night, they found the faint point of light slowly moving across the sky and they discovered Neptune. The story of prediction and discrepancy and new theory and triumphant discovery is so classic. And Levier uh, became so famous from it that people tried to get in on the act right away. In the last 164 years, dozens of astronomers have used some sort of uh, alleged orbital discrepancy to predict the existence of some new planet in our solar system. They have always been wrong, though. The most famous of these erroneous predictions was Percival Lowell, who was, uh, you know, obviously the founder of the Lowell Observatory. Um, Obviously. Yeah, obviously. These people. (laughs) So um, he was convinced that there must be a planet just beyond Uranus and Neptune messing with those orbits. And so when Pluto was discovered in 1930 at the Lowell Observatory, everybody assumed that it must be the planet that Lowell had predicted. But they were wrong. And it turns out Uranus and Neptune are exactly where they're supposed to be. It took 100 years, but Bouvard was eventually right, and astronomers needed to do better measurements. And when they did those better measurements, it turned out that there is no planet just beyond the orbit of Uranus and Neptune. And Pluto is thousands of times too small to have any effect on those planets at all. This theory for another planet was ruled out for a while while Neptune came on the scene because of its size. So even though Pluto turned out not to be the planet, it was the first discovery of what is now known to be thousands of tiny icy objects in orbit beyond the planets. And um, and this was credited to astronomer Clyde Tombaugh. These icy bodies are pushed and pulled. It's also said that that's, you know, possibly one of the theories of where Pluto could come from. Mm. Um These icy bodies are pushed and pulled by the gravitational fields of the planets in entirely predictable ways. Everything goes around the sun exactly the way it's supposed to. So we think. So in 2003, um, astronomer Mike Brown discovered what is known to be the most distant known object in the entire solar system. So it was hard for him and his team not to think that this was some distant uh, undiscovered planet 
But the question that needed to be asked was, what kind of orbit does it have around the sun? Does it have a circular orbit that goes around the sun like a normal planet? Or is it a little bit tossed outward and now on its way back like these other icy objects? And these icy objects, uh, what they discovered was from the Kuiper Belt, which is basically, uh, you know, how we have our our um, asteroid belt, you know, between Mars and Jupiter. Well, the Kuiper Belt is like way distance outside of Neptune, our farthest planet. And that there's a bunch of another like rocky, icy bodies uh, there, too. Um, so they found observations of these objects from 13 years earlier, which allowed them to figure out how it went around the sun. So they found out it had a massively elongated orbit that takes 10,000 years huh, to go around the sun. They named the object Sedna after the Inuit goddess, goddess of the sea in honor of the cold, icy places where it spends all of its time. And doesn't that sound familiar? Inuit, Tiamat, uh, goddess of the sea, uh, the whole icy, cold thing. So anyway, uh, Sedna is about a third the size of Pluto, and it's relatively typical member of those icy bodies out beyond Neptune. Only thing was, they found it uh, they found it had a very bizarre orbit. And the bizarre thing about it is that Sedna never comes close to anything else in the solar system. Even at its closest approach to the sun, Sedna is further from Neptune uh, than Neptune is from the Earth. If Sedna had an orbit that uh, that kisses the orbit of Neptune around the sun, it would have been explained with ease. That would have just been an object that would have been in a circular orbit around the sun in that region of icy bodies. It would have gotten a little bit too close to Neptune one time and then got slingshot out and is now on its way back in. But Sedna never comes close to anything known in the solar system that could have given it that slingshot. Neptune can't be responsible, but something had to be responsible. This was the first time since 1845 that astronomers saw that the gravitational effects of something in the outer solar system and they didn't know what it was. This is why it is thought <clears throat> to be because of some distant giant planet, despite being so heavily, uh, heavily discredited. But 4.5 billion years ago, when the sun formed in a cocoon of hundreds of other stars, any one of those stars could have gotten just a little bit too close to Sedna and slingshot it um, onto the orbit it has today. When the cluster of stars dissipated into the galaxy, the orbit of Sedna would have been left as a fossil record of this early history of the sun. Um, and they were able to see the history and the birth of this sun. So now with Clyde Tombaugh's discovery of Pluto as the first object of the Kuiper belt, uh, it was calculated that some of those Kuiper belt objects take 10,000 years to revolve around the sun. All of their orbits point in the same direction, roughly, and they almost lie in the same plane. So it looks like something is corralling them into a group or a cluster. And what the structure is telling is that there's a gravitational influence beyond the eight known planets of the solar system. And there sparks the theory that there exists a ninth planet, which lives very far away and is roughly estimated to be to be a mean distance of 500 astronomical units so that's 500 times more distance from the Earth to the sun. 
This puts it at a similar orbital period as some of those very long period Kuiper belt objects. So the, why am I going into this? It's to show you that there's, you know, relevant data today that is still is still being researched and um, it, to find to see that there's this effect that really does possibly show us that there can be this giant distant planet like well with well beyond our solar system and from what we know about the stories from the Sumerian tablets and and um and what they say about Nibiru like could this could this be it let's not count anything out you know I think we should never say something's really it you know I, I, to, especially in a topic like this it should never be a, I don't believe or I do believe mm. the evidence should be shown to you and if you don't have a 100 percent answer to it if you cannot prove it it still possibly could be it so this can be it because no one's proven it wrong and that's my mindset always it, it even when we used to talk with with religion when i was younger and i was kind of becoming an atheist for a while it's like yeah but my own logic like back to myself was like yeah but you can't prove it the other way yeah. you can't prove it's not real mm -hmm. so with all these scientists discovering things someone like me is praying it's it because yeah. I want these things to happen. I want these things to be real. To discover a new planet and potentially have an alien race on it. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's because it means it means more for our story and our you know what we ever, we're even about if we if we get that. Like, and that's the thing. It's still all this, even even the whole uh, Sumerian text and the Enuma Elish, all that, and Atreides, and this whole you know distant giant planet outside of our solar system. Like, it's still a continued thing that's being searched. Like it's still something that's really still not fully understood. And I think that's that's the amazing part about it is that it really leaves that openness to, you know, what the fuck do we really know about anything? Yeah. The wonder. The wonder is the important part. Mm -hmm. The ability to tap into your imagination and think, wow, that could be something that could be real. Yeah. You know, if if you're an A to Z person, straightforward logic, and you're not using your imagination, it's just not healthy. Yeah. You were given an imagination. Use it. Yeah. And with a topic like this, I mean, there's real scientists out there looking every day for this planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if they discover the planet, by the way, that mm -hmm. means that, who knows, maybe that answers a lot of things within the mythology. Yep. Maybe, maybe we start understanding that certain things weren't real. Maybe yeah. they were real. But it will answer those questions. And, uh, you know, I really feel like the key to our salvation, in my opinion, is not just the return of Christ, but it is understanding our true history. Yeah. And we've become like, that's the other thing. Like there's things that we, we feel are so that we're so settled on and think that it's a dumb deal. We know what it is and stuff like that just in everyday life. And if you just, if you really just think about certain things and you see if that was to actually all in turn, not be true. And it actually was something else, whatever it may be there's a good possibility that a whole thing could really change. You know, you may not think that it's like something that would change your own life, but it could, it could change your own life in certain ways and, and, and really just create something different for yourself yeah. or just the world. Yeah. You could see it in a lot of people just with their ideals alone. I mean, when it comes to racism, when mm -hmm. it comes to politics, you know, uh, I'll use politics. Like if you have a Democrat and they immediately go, Oh, those Republicans, you know, you have a neighbor moves mm -hmm. in, Oh, you like them surface level. Oh, how you doing this and that? Uh, what are you? I'm a Republican. 
You know, that fucking neighbor we got. Yeah. I don't like that guy. <laughs> You completely shut yourself off from experiencing something brand new because of an ideal and something you think is already set in stone that that's what it is. It goes to racist people. It goes to feminists and it goes to, you know, sexism, all those very touchy topics. Mm -hmm. I feel like maybe you have a certain right to believe what it is you want to believe and see things. But if you don't have the proper evidence, whether it's for or against what it is you preach, you know, enter into the wonder. The wonder is the most important part. Get to know things. Look into things. Use your brain. Technology can't do everything for you. And if so, guess what? Technology is your new master. Mm-hmm. So to to enter these mysteries and learn these stories always is, is a wonder to me. And I think it's healthy. Yeah. And yep. I do wonder, is there a planet out there? Yeah. Was there gods on this on this earth before us? Were we made? You know? Yeah. And with going along with this, like if, you know, we, if this stuff, like something like this would turn out to be true, like the things that we consider are problems that a lot of times we make mountains out of mohills with like certain things that we're dealing with today, you know, just, you could pick your own and stuff. (laughs) Those problems would seem really, really small if something like this was to come out and be definitive and everything like it, this is something that actually would change our perspective about everything we know evolution it would change um how you know even uh what we know about physics and other stuff like it it really like forget all today's problems and shit that would be like whoa yeah and then it also changes that shit don't matter well it would change your perspective on on history and who told it to us yeah and then how many other stories and things were skewed yeah and we could probably also be a little bit kinder to each other too and be like hey (laughs) like we're all, we all don't belong here. Like, <laughs> Imagine, right? Yeah. That could be, a, that's a possibility mm-hmm. that we aren't actually from here or we were designed or anything like that. And this discovery of this planet would prove that at least, well, you'd have the discovery of the planet first and then we would have to see if it's inhabited yes. or was, Let's see, you know, what kind of what kind of life is there? You know, maybe to certain people, I think about this is because it can't be answered in the moment. They just don't want to think about it. Yeah. They find it irrelevant because it it's not something, especially in America here, I think we want everything now, yesterday, mm-hmm. you know? So if there's some, there's a topic like this where it's like, oh, it's, we haven't figured it out yet and you're not going to, you're not going to get your answer that you want today. Yeah. I don't want to, all right. And there's always, want. and there's always like that thing. I, I feel like that we, uh, we expect to experience something like new in a physical sort of way, like something that's physical, something that could be explained by our science and our, our, our physics and all the, those mechanisms and stuff like that. But like, what if it's something beyond that, that can't be explained by those things. And it's like, we have to be able to be open to it in order to even begin to understand it. So it's like, <laughs> if that is to come into play, big change would happen. Yep. In the consciousness of man, and the whole globe mm-hmm. and how we do things. And I pray for it. That's why, that's why we both pray for it. We both pray for something to be discovered or something huge to happen because I think we're due. We're due for the it. The world needs a change. It you does. Know, I mean, I know we're going through a big change with all this stuff and everything, but I mean, it's, I think it's definitely playing a role in the change and reset or whatever you want to call it that needs to happen. But I just think that also it's in such a skewed way that, has you know humans grubby little paws on it we need something beyond humans 
to yeah yeah I to think I'm give us a wake up call. I think I'm over not over humans. I love humans, but yeah. I'm I'm over the story. Yeah, the story. It's like watching the same movie. I said that last episode. Yeah, it's like watching the same movie over and over again. It's like, can we just move on from this act, please? Mm-hmm, for you know, real. bring in the aliens, bring in the crazy shit. I'm ready for it. Yeah, let's go. We can handle it. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, back to the planet here, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of concepts and uh, research scholars in the field they consider it a red or brown dwarf star, right? Mm-hmm. And it supposedly has carry it carries along seven other planets that orbits it. Hmm. Uh, therefore, it might be a mini solar system. And according to, uh, you know, certain scientists, and, and these, these are theories here, Nibiru is close to five times larger than Jupiter. So all the affecting the, you know, Uranus and affecting the Earth and all that other stuff. Um, there's many other theories, but in this, in where I've, you know, grabbed this information, they said to be five times larger than Jupiter. And if you know how big Jupiter is, mm-hmm. that's, that's, 6,500 times larger than earth. And this is a little, this is a different theory than, you know, what I just kind of explained because, you know, that whole being Jupiter, this, this other theory explains it as something that's around a little bit bigger than Neptune. Right. Yeah. And, and, Mm. and there's, and there's plenty. So if you go do your research, there's plenty of things that, that, you know, go into different sizes, what it could be, this and that. And there's a lot up in the air. So this is a very, you know, open, uh, topic yeah. and not even close to being answered. It may not even be about the size. It could be about the motion in the ocean. Ooh. <laughs> Especially with Neptune. Motion in the ocean, baby. Oh, shit. Yeah. Captain Poseidon. Yeah. Um, so the New York Times in 1982, they actually had an article. And uh, I quote, something out there beyond the farthest reaches of the known solar system seems to be tugging at Uranus and Neptune, just like Geo's talking about. Some gravitational force keeps perturbing the two giant planets, causing irregularities in their orbits. Now, this was 1982. You said 1930, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking 1982. This, start to ha- this starts to happen again and written in the New York Times. So uh, the force suggests a presence far away and unseen, a large object that may be the long-sought planet X. Ooh. The last time a serious search of the skies was made, it led to the discovery in 1930 of, nine, er, of Pluto, the ninth mm-hmm. planet. So uh, according to an article published in Newsweek on July 13th, 1987, NASA disclosed that there may be a 10th planet orbiting our sun. According to NASA research scientist John Anderson, planet X might actually be out there, but nowhere near our planets. The article from Newsweek states, if he is right, two of the most intriguing puzzles of space science might be solved. What caused the mysterious irregularities in the orbits of Uranus and Neptune during the 19th century? And what killed off the dinosaurs 26 million years ago? So Uh, as you can see, like it's, it's, it's not that long ago that we finally really, I mean, the whole talk about this whole extra planet kind of really, you know, I mean, the discoveries in the scientific world about something being out there. Yes, it goes back, you know, further, but really the whole coining of this planet X thing really comes around the 1970s. Uh, the, the, even really the discussion of bringing it up again and stuff. And when it comes to actually being observed as a scientific real possibility, it really is not that long ago. We're talking, we're talking, you know, late eighties, nineties, and then even the, the bigger discover the, there's bigger discoveries that happened in, you know, around 2000, 12, 2014 and 15 and so on. So yeah, man, 
leading up to today. And the thing is, time really, as you get old, I don't think it's actually when you get older, time speeds up. I do mm. think it's speeding up. But as I do get older, I really think like the operating system of the brain gets just used to time mm-hmm. and it just feels like days pass. Yeah. So thinking 30, 40, even 50 years ago really isn't mm. that far when you talk about the, you know, the, the measurement of time. Yeah. It's still new. Yeah. And nearly all the information surrounding the existence of this planet it's been heavily suppressed. Now, why is that? You know, mm. it's guarded from uh, society's awareness. What else is new? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Robert Harrington, the head astronomer of the United States Naval Observatory, he became focused on finding the mysterious planet after observing a gravitational disruption in the orbits of Neptune and Uranus. So obviously this plays a huge part in that, Neptune and Uranus. Um, after seeing the planet, he had supposedly seen the planet on an IRAS probe in 1983. Harrington traveled to the southern tip of New Zealand, where he believed, uh, where it is believed he observed the incoming planet on an eight-inch telescope. Ooh, eight-inch telescope. Hey, there. 1993. Uh, shortly after the discovery, though, this is we've heard this story before. Robert Harrington was found dead of hmm. cancer, and then all of his work was immediately debunked as simply mathematical error. The, tr- uh, the truth behind the planet, really, it, it I think it represents one of the greatest secrets. And anytime someone, I think when people start dying off or things get pushed to the side, I do think that's, it's like the sleight of hand. Yeah. They'll distract you with, you know, um, you know, the voice. Just like the guy who created the PCR test. I found that a little fishy. Yeah, that's insane. Died right before they uh, came out with the, uh, the whole. Yeah, the uh, CV test. Yep. Yeah, basically there was the, the PCR test that they used to test for the um, plague, mm-hmm. we'll call it. Yeah. Um, it was used in the early 90s to find AIDS or an yeah. HIV. Yeah. And when you look into the process of the actual uh, the test itself, he says it, mm-hmm. that it wasn't really supposed to be used for diagnosing. Yeah. It takes a whole lot of something. It takes something and turns it into a whole lot of something to better be able to observe it. And to, to be able to compare it to other data to see if it has the potential of being harmful or not harmful. But that's the other thing he says, too, that it was not the PCR test was not used to make diagnosis, was not something to tell if somebody was sick or not sick. It was purely for statistical data purposes. Yep. And why do you think then? Mm-hmm. Isn't it ironic that there's so many false positives? Yes. And yes, exactly. Because it all depends on how like you can manipulate the data from it. So that's, that's a whole nother thing. And, and if you want, let us know, shout out to us on, you know, either one of our social media pages, you can send us a message, send us an email. And if you want us to, we'll go into that. We'll find a way. Yeah. Real quick. Just if anybody wants to really look into, into that, the guy's name is Carrie Mullis. K-A-R-Y-M-U-L-L-I-S. Go look. Go look up his stuff. A lot of a lot of videos about the things he said have actually been taken down. I'm sorry, that just like intrigued me. He died in August of 2019, literally right before, you know, it kind of came out that this was a possibility that it was a problem. And he actually called out Fauci for being a dumbass. So pretty, pretty interesting stuff. All right, sorry. Go ahead. No, it's right. All right. It sounds like it was right around the event to a one thing, too. Yeah. Which that yeah. would be discussed as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Do you really want to get canceled? I, I, you know <laughs> what? I have confidence that we'd be able to figure out a way around it. And guess what? We also can, listen, we could also kind of do our own little private thing and 
and send it to individuals in a way. So yeah, yeah. that's fine. And it relates to back to the planet. It's things are, if things are kept from you or if they're pushed to the side, there's a reason. Yeah. Usually. That's why I most of the time, Hey, people support us. We can be able to eventually create our own, our own network and say what we want to say. And we could really get deep into topics. So yeah, Keep that yeah, in mind, people. Yeah. And, <laughs> and and uh, as I always say, speculation is always the, the always the key. It's not about telling. It's it's about laying down facts for you and theories mm-hmm. and letting you decide. So we will discuss it through speculative yes. ways. Yeah, just to, so you don't get not played. saying to not wear a mask yeah, or do whatever. It's not, not about that. that. It's let. It's for you to decide. Mm-hmm. And if you shut, I mean, this is my thing with it too. If you shut it down right away, what if you're wrong? Yeah. So why not listen? This way you don't feel played. Yep. So back on the yeah. <laughs> back on the planet here. So in theory, Nibiru, uh, the, the true orbit is around 3,600 years. With the gigantic size, it is a very strong gravitational pull and it influences our oceans and all magnetic fields. Uh, they, did have, they did claim back over a decade ago in 2001... Uh, there were certain people that had claimed that it was a fourth dimensional or fifth dimensional planet that approached the sun and it began forcefully pulling at the sun's core. The core of the sun is actually 65 times that of Nibiru. Thus, the solar, the solar activity in relation to explosions and solar storms has increased around that time uh, so much that the Maximo solar started, which was in 2011, uh, has not stopped till this day. Mm. Um, that was archived in actually 2014. So I'd have to look into that as well. But basically they were saying there was a lot of solar activity that could be affected by another planet. Oh. Yeah. So these are, these are, these are theories here. Um, they also say the emissions are in the ultraviolet solar radiation level ranging from zero to 16. And we're currently at 15 and the normal was between nine and 10. So the radiation was through the roof. And this was around the time predicted by certain people that Nibiru was coming back. Um, so, and they really believe that it was caused by the approach of the planet. Mm-hmm. So wow. I, I, do, do I believe uh, that? I, I, don't I know. mean, from all the stories and even the ancient stories and whatever we know about it and its effect on orbits and gravitational pulls and and just the magnetic energy that it does and stuff like that. Like apparently, it caused a lot of disruptions. You know, from all these stories we see. Well, according to these, and I, don't, I, I actually don't even think I grabbed the author. I forgot. To, I forgot to grab it. But so what they say is they said to keep in mind that the sun influenced uh, or Nibiru influenced the sun and the sun influenced it back because of the magnetic and gravitational intensity of Nibiru. uh, It influenced the sun in a way that it initiated the reversal of its magnetic poles. The Hmm. same reversal is also happening here on Earth, Uh gravitational pull and magnetic fields. Uh, In order to perform this reversal, these two forces acting together are required. So, and we do have the, the magnetic field is weakening and the yeah. poles are starting to shift yep. and how ironic that every, so if you line up the, uh, the, the time the planet would make its return, it's also around the same time the magnetic field shifts. Yeah. And we've when had the, mag- the pole shift. Yeah. And we had those, you know, the five cataclysmic events that happened in the history of our earth, our planet earth and stuff, you know, there's always this whole, you know, uh, uh, pole shift. So, yep. yeah. so ironically, so in this theory, this, this person had said that, Hey, well, back in 2011, Nibiru came close, started affecting the sun 
and started, and the sun, of course, is going to affect because yeah. the radiation and yeah. everything, everything from the sun controls the earth. Yes. Mm-hmm. Suns, the sun's primal, radiation controls this whole, force. yes, it controls yeah. the whole solar system mm-hmm. and, and affects every planet. And we know that. And then, and then on a bigger level, the galaxy does the same thing to the, to the stars and the suns. Yeah. Everything that goes on in the middle of the galaxy pulses out in photon belts, mm-hmm. hits the sun, hits the planets, and yeah. then it, it causes some sort of evolution or change mm-hmm. in the solar system. Which that's actually kind of goes into a little bit of uh, something I'm going to go into a little bit later. Very nice. So, um, and just to say, me and Geo sometimes come with notes. We don't, we actually don't even tell each other what we have. Nope. So. <laughs> sometimes it's a fucking surprise. Yep. So I know that uh, I'm going to eventually get to the, to the many cultures because these, these Anunnaki and this talk of Nibiru actually starts coming from a lot of the cultures around the world at different times stated in our episode with religion on how for some reason the story just kept popping up about Jesus Christ and all these other sun gods. Mm-hmm. So with Nibiru, it, there tends to be an ongoing pattern and with the Anunnaki with many names and many stories, but having these very similar characteristics built in. But, um, yeah, it just comes to me end up being more and more discoveries with things that not necessarily is disproving anything that we already have established, but Kind of just um, bringing more of an awareness about certain things. Yep. But um, um, but back, you know, also I want to go back to the 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 theory of these icy objects in the Kuiper Belt, um, and when looking at those, so the orbit of one of these objects, the orbit would be unlike the orbit of the rest of the planets in the solar system, and more elliptical rather than circular. So, what? The astronomer Mike Brown had found was that when looking for more objects with similar orbit as Sedna over a 10 year period, he literally found none. His colleagues eventually found several objects with orbits like Sedna. But what they also found was that not only are these distant elongated orbits, um, but they also share a common value of this obscured orbital parameter that in celestial mechanics is called is called the argument of perihelion. When they realized that it must be caused by some distant giant planet out there, it still didn't make any sense to picture what they saw. Imagine the analogy of a person walking down a plaza and looking 45 degrees to their right. Now imagine many different people all walking in different directions across the plaza, but all looking 45 degrees to the direction that they are moving. So everybody is moving and looking in a different uh, in different directions, but they are looking 45 degrees to the direction of their motion. What would cause something like that? Probably, obviously, something that it's. You know, when we're talking about people, something that they're looking at. Um, It's bizarre and difficult to find a reason for that. This is exactly what this cluster in the argument of perihelion was telling these astronomers. Scientists thought it to be a fluke and a lack of proper observation and said they needed to do better measurements again. But the measurements were right. Those objects all shared that common value of argument of perihelion, but they shouldn't have. Something had to be causing him. And by the way, perihelion is about, you know, when you look at um, an orbit going around the sun, there's, you know, the one that's like a distant perihelion. Perihelion just means like it's a curve 
uh, when it when it curves from the sun? Is it far when it curves down that one side? Is it far away from the sun or is it the curve that's coming from back around the sun? In 2014, a survey from WISE, which is the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer Satellite, ruled out the existence of any planets larger than Saturn orbiting our sun at a distance of 10,000 astronomical units. Remember, large, any planets larger than Saturn. This put an end to the theory of a Jupiter-sized planet named Tyche causing these anomalies. However, since Saturn is larger than Neptune and Nibiru is said to be about the size of Neptune, the Y satellite would not have been able to register planets smaller than Saturn if it had scanned one. So finally, in 2016, when Mike Brown's colleague, Constantine Batygin, and himself sat down and further observed this phenomenon, they actually saw that these objects were all lined up in space in the same direction and all tilted in the same direction. This clustering, uh, the the clustering of, of these objects around a singular large body has just a 0.007 chance of being a coincidence. So little to none, basically. It's as if those people that are walking in the plaza are walking in the same direction and they're all looking 45 degrees to the right side. They're all looking at something. These objects in the solar system are all reacting to something. But what are they reacting to? Brown and and Constantine spent a year trying to come up with any explanation other than a distant giant planet in the outer solar system because they did not want to be the 33rd and 34th person in history to propose this planet only to be told that they were that they were wrong. But after that, they weren't able to come up with any other explanation but that. So this brings us to today where everything points to the explanation and they are trying to use the right calculus still to this day. They're still trying to use the right calculations in order to know where to point their telescopes to find whatever this giant distant object is that is having this effect on these Kuiper Belt objects. It's like they are back in 1845 again. They've done massive amounts of analytics and simulations, and this is what they've come up with about this planet nine. It is six times six times the mass of the earth and would be the fifth largest planet in our solar system if it is a planet. But if it's so big, why have they not been able to find it yet? Well, for starters, it is something like 15 times further away than Neptune is, which is which makes it 50,000 times fainter than Neptune when viewing it through uh, these observable tel- telescopes. Also, the sky is a very big place and they have to narrow down where they think it may be, which is relatively small, uh, relatively small area of the sky. But it still would take years to observe the amount of area in great uh, detail. It's kind of like looking for a needle in a haystack through the hole of a straw, basically. Um, They might not need to, though, because just like Bouvard used previous observations with Uranus and how they found Neptune, there can be unnoticed images that show the location of planet nine. It's going to be massive to go through all of that old data and to continue searching and take years, but it's definitely possible. Um, and, and not only that, it's, it's like 
the, the other thing too that I, I know that they've said as far as when looking at these things, they're the imaging because of how far away it is and using these telescopes. One, it's like the technology needs to catch up with it to be able to view farther and farther and farther. Um, but also they have to have the right elements in place too. You know, uh, when looking in clear skies, no, uh, you know, turbulence actually affect the turbulence in the atmosphere actually affect the imaging of, of when looking through these telescopes. So, and they get like probably about one or two, one or two of these nights throughout the whole year. So <laughs> that's what I mean. That's why it takes a long time. Like in, they, in back in 2000. 16, 18, they said about, you know, probably another 10 years before they find this planet. And they're pretty confident about uh, finding this planet. So within the next couple of years, astronomers may find a faint moving light and possibly discover and finally this long lost hidden giant distant planet or celestial body. Very. And, you know, I'm going to bring in a little more wonder is that possibly could be that the planet or species or both are on a different dimension and vibrational mm-hmm. frequency. Cause there's plenty of things that pop up in myth that, that, you know, that they aren't from here. They're from heaven or, you know, they're in a, they come from another dimension and who knows, maybe that's why we can't sense it or measure it. Or maybe mm-hmm. that's why we're getting certain electromagnetic frequencies and then can't see it. Yeah. You know, that's definitely a possibility. It's why I had brought up the whole pole shift. And, and when, when you learn about electromagnetic energy and all that, and how the whole universe is electric and magnetic, that, our frequency band of sight and and hearing and all that, obviously we know that already that it's in a, in its own little box. So this planet could actually be on a whole nother level. Yeah. Like we said, it was like, it could possibly not even be a planet. And I mean, that, that definitely goes along with the whole, what you're saying as something that's in a different type of dimension, like that's a different dimensional thing that we can't experience with our senses possibly. You know, that could also be another thing. Yeah. I, I mean, love I, the I love the analogy of when you're playing a game and that game has a certain has certain laws and rules and you can't go beyond certain things or you can't see certain things. Obviously there's always cheat codes and yeah. stuff, but like you can't just certain like in this avatar and in this brain and it's a certain measurement of frequency, mm-hmm. you we can't experience yeah. something beyond. Yeah, like you said, like in a video game you have the video game character and he knows about the video game world that he's in and stuff, but he can't go. And this has to do with the whole like God thing too. It's like he can't actually go and know or observe or like have that thought. I mean, well, yeah, that thought, but like can't go and observe the person actually playing the video game. Just not scientifically possible. Yeah. Right. It's not in, in measurement form. You yeah. know, like you, you, if something can't be measured, there are rules, there are laws, and mm-hmm. we not we might not be able to perceive this, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And maybe that's why these beings come and go. Maybe they come every 3,600 years. Maybe they're already here. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of videos and evidence saying, you know, we we see things all the time now where yeah. aliens are, are here. You see their ships and stuff, and they there's certain videos I've seen where they pop in and out. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's like they do go into another dimension, like yeah. a wormhole or something. Apparently that they're so, you know, technologically, and when I say technologically advanced, it's more so the fact that with whatever their technology may be, it's that they have a direct connection to it with their own, uh, with their own being and their own consciousness. Um, and that's why we say that, you know, it's possible that aliens or 
whatever light beings and stuff like that have have the probably have the possibility of going from etheric and to materializing you know there's there's that always that possibility with that right so yeah yeah so i want to go into the cultures because mm-hmm. i've mentioned before the many cultures around the around the globe or earth mm-hmm. um they talked of <laughs> beings <laughs> got that got yeah, that. I that the earth earth sorry oh. Sorry, David. Not, Weiss. Not, yeah, I don't want to get I don't want to get canceled by yeah. the truth community either. Yeah. Don't get David Weiss all upset either. Yeah, he had a good video though. He had some argument. I yeah. actually enjoyed it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, dude, I I, I, definitely I don't, dude, I do not discredit. No, nah. I don't. I, I I like that guy. I definitely I definitely would would want to have him on again and talk to him oh, again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, all very good arguments. Now, I'm not on either side. Mm-hmm. I'm just on the side of I listen. So, what do the many cultures? and even scripture say about this planet and the inhabitants of it. Mm-hmm. So in the 1930s, two French, uh, French anthropologists, they visited a remote tribe called the Dogon people in Mali, Africa. The Dogon tribe had extensive and advanced knowledge of celestial star systems with a heavy emphasis on the constellation of Canis Major and the dog star known as Sirius. Uh, they knew of Precise details for the elliptical orbits of the suns of Sirius A, B, and even a tiny third sun called C. The unknown question at the time, and the important link for proving an intelligent uh, outside influence, lies in the fact that Sirius B cannot be seen by the naked eye and wasn't photographed up until 1970 by radio telescope. Yet, somehow this knowledge had been well known and passed for passed down for hundreds of generations. You know, these people, they're a tribe. They mm-hmm. don't have technology yeah. to even see and it took us all the way till 1970 yeah um and it was being passed down from generations hundreds of years so even more impressive is that the dogon people speak of a third star called sirius c as i said uh that hasn't even been discovered yet by modern astronomy so they mm-hmm. these people back in the day talking about they knew of this knew of this we discover it but where's that third star uh this seemingly simple and primitive tribe in Western Africa somehow possessed and understood vast amounts of information about our galaxy uh, that modern science is just catching up with and discovering today. The Dogon people have retained their heritage and ancient knowledge they say was given to them by great beings known as the Nomo and passed down this vital information for thousands of years. So thousands of years, not even hundreds, thousands Hmm. of years. The most logical question though is who are the Nomo? So the first reported association of the Dogon uh, with about the knowledge of Sirius being a binary star was in the 1940s, giving the Dogon ample opportunity to gain cosmological knowledge about Sirius and the solar system from more scientifically advanced terrestrial societies whom they had come in contact with. So that's unanswered. They don't know how those people had got that that information. They know of stars and things very far away that Mm -hmm. took us 30 more years after they had even told us about it to find. So now we find these two stars. They say there's a third one. Mm -hmm. What could that third one be? It's not like they're just looking up and being like, oh, like the way we look up and we see certain stars. Right. And this is in parallel to the many other stories like the uh, Atrahasis and all the other ones that say that beings were here that gave us knowledge. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, in the uh, Babylonian artifacts, there's a lot of depictions of of uh, certain stars, star clusters and star systems. And even there's a big debate about the whole Marduk 
which is Nibiru, the whole Marduk, you know, being represented as a star a lot of the times. Um, and we do see that with other cultures in their artifacts. When you see the, um, well, not, not hieroglyphs, not cuneiform, but like there are certain picture depictions, you know, and we see that a lot with the uh, Sumerian, like a lot of the Mesopotamian cultures. Yeah. So a lot of images and things showing up on these cuneiform tablets that repeat all mm-hmm. over the earth. Yep. Um, so, and I found, I found that very interesting because really that's, that's not the first time this has happened where we find ancient artifacts and we find certain stories told thousands and thousands of years ago. And these traditions of these, these ancient tribes, they know stuff before we do. I mean, we are, we, they knew about quantum physics. They knew about electromagnetism and plenty of other things. So this now starts for me, me personally points it in the direction of there's something there, mm-hmm. you know, there had to be something that gave us this knowledge. Um, my next one is the Nag Hammadi library and the book of Enoch, which they give us a rare glimpse into the altered writings of what the Bible would have contained. Uh, these lost texts give us a far more complete understanding of who the gods were and their purpose. The book of Enoch talks extensively about visitors called the watchers who resided on earth and never left. Hmm. The ancient Sumerian people refer to these visitors as the Anunnaki, mm-hmm. which means those who from heaven to earth came. Mm-hmm. All of these ancient writings and tablets paint us a clear picture of who these gods really were and to separate out uh, what it, uh, from what has become simply a myth to the human species. Even in the modern book of Genesis, a giant hybrid race of humans known as the Nephilim is mentioned, yet few, few even question its meaning or who they were. Because there is a Bible scripture that uses the word Nephilim. Yeah. Um, all of this inform- uh, the ancient information paints a story for the past events on earth and who was here, who are still maybe here. Mm-hmm. So onto the Bible, uh, these beings mentioned uh, had far advanced technology, always considered gods and thought as divine, the Elohim or Nephilim. Uh, I think the Elohim was the yeah. n- new t- um, the Nephilim was the Old Testament. Yeah. Elohim. And then when Elohim when when Elohim was described, and a lot of people I'd say El, they they call Elohim God, mm-hmm. but the way it's used in the Bible is plural. Yeah, when you really translated it as actually plural. Yeah. So yet this wording would imply that there are multiple gods that somehow control the earth, and instead of questioning the logic, humans have openly accepted it's just a religious story. Mm-hmm. All throughout history, stories have been told and carried down through generations, mentioning these gods frequently, and these elaborate stories have become nothing more than mythology. Mm-hmm. And, a lot, and that happens a lot. Yeah, and we have a lot of we have a lot of talks. Uh, I mean, a lot of uh, depictions in biblical teachings of you know fallen angels, and uh, even even you know uh, angels visiting certain disciples and Mary and and coming to them and it's like you know yeah we've there was a lot of we've accepted a lot of that sometimes uh, yeah. I know a lot of times when people don't accept it and stuff but for those that are more um, mystical or spiritual or religious they have accepted those things so you see how you know this is all coming into relevance and correlation with each other yeah and you're talking about tribes and people that didn't live they lived nowhere near each other proven fact yeah they had no means of communication but they're all saying that these beings came out of the sky Mm -hmm. sky gods and they came from heaven and that there were multiple 
And they're all telling the same story. Mm-hmm. It, I'm telling you, it's in, in, in parallel to the same thing that happened with religion, or maybe it's the same story. Yeah. And we're definitely, as, as we move through these episodes, we're going to be going deeper into these so-called beings and uh, fallen ones and the Nephilim and all of that even further. Yeah. Yeah. And now, you know what, real quick, uh, I'm, let me just list some names because mm-hmm. all around the earth before I carry on to the Bible. So we have the Anuna we've talked about, which is the Sumerians, the Akkadians, Babylonians. Uh, you also have the Anakim, mm-hmm. which is described as a race of gods that descended from Anak, according to the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. You have the Nephilim, which was mentioned in the Bible. You have the fallen ones, mentions Genesis 6-4. And then I said the Elohim, which is plural for God. Plural. Uh, the Gnostics in the Nag Hammadi Library, they were called the Archons hmm. with a very similar story. Uh, actually, everything I'm naming right now all does have parallel uh, things into the stories. Uh, the jinn. And the jinn was mentioned in the Quran and described as reptilian-like beings, mm-hmm. which would lead into Mr. Ike's theories yeah. of the reptilians. Yeah. Uh, you have Nibirians, because they were from the planet Nibiru. Mardukians, mm-hmm. and we would know where that came from. And then you have your modern-day royal bloodlines. Um, they were even called giants. We've said that many times. Uh, some Martians, Marduk, Mar- Mars. Yeah. Yes, that would make sense, right? Red. Mm-hmm. Um, I have something that I'll go into that too. <laughs> yeah, that's fine, of course. And then uh, when they were called the giants, we could think of the titans. Yeah. Uh, and I, deep down into the depths of the internet, I found another name for them. I've never heard this before, but M- Mirabingians, which was in the area of France and Germany. And the Merovingians are the offspring of the tribe of Dan, which intermarried with the Canaanite uh, de Dinan also known as the dragon lords of Anu, because they were the offspring of the fallen angels. Mm. Uh, the tribe of Dan said to, had, said to have had separated from Moses and may have been running among, uh, among the mixed multitude that left Egypt with the Israelites, and that's Exodus, uh, Exodus 12.38, and fellow lusting in Numbers 11.4. So all those different names, very similar stories, different areas of the world, different times, why and how. It's a good question and still unanswered. So throughout the Bible, with these beings having this advanced technology, uh, humans really just have accepted it as the story. And I think it's important to question it because uh, it's just too obvious to me. It's too obvious that there's unanswered things. If it doesn't make complete logical sense, there's something more to it. So let's keep going. (laughs) So all throughout history, stories have been told and carried down through generations, mentioning these gods and these elaborate stories have become nothing more than mythologies. Many of the tales are represented and exaggerated in metaphors and taken at uh, simple face value. However, there is almost an element of truth in them as well. People think of dragons, wizards, giants as nothing more than a laughable fairy tale. And even though these depictions have turned up in stories and drawings all over the world, um, many of like the older Asian cultures, like the Japanese, have worshipped what? A dragon. dragon. Right. And they mm-hmm. even call the, 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 the ley lines on the earth dragon lines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very prominent in all their myths. Yeah. And I'll go into the whole thing of uh, what did we see that uh, in the Anua militia of what they, you know, consider Tiamat. Tiamat was the sea dragon. Yeah. So there yeah. you go. And what was uh, another consideration of Ea or Enki was the serpent. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Who was a, he was the son of yeah. Tiamat, right? 
So with them mentioning and worshiping dragons from their earliest records, they even placed it on the official flags and banners to commemorate them. They're playing, they're, they're paying this homage to these things. And why? Why so important? So arriving in ancient Egypt, we find a wealth of evidence all pointing towards the extraterrestrial influences that shape the past and represent a portal into understanding the roots of our ancestors. Uh, the Great Pyramids of Giza, uh, if viewed from the air, all aligned geometrically perfect to the three stars that make up the belt of Orion. Inside the largest of the Giza pyramids, there are vertical shafts that point directly to Orion's belt and Sirius. There's that Sirius star again. Mm. So here's another culture worshiping that dog star, the Sirius star. Both of these constellations have a rich history with Egypt, Mexico, Peru, and much of the Middle East into Southern Asia. So that's basically the whole world. Yeah, It's all like along the, the, this, the area of the equator, that whole thing. Uh, right. Right. And why so important? Crazy. Because it's like, you know, these people are telling the the same story all from that same, that that location is obviously very important. And I think a lot of it really had to do with the location of the the stars. I think the stars up in the sky and the location of them really does play a big part in where humans were living. You know, hey man, we believe in astrology. Obviously the the stars do have an effect. And that goes along with the whole seismic wave that the sun makes, uh, well, that we view how we see the sun move through the sky, that seismic wave and how it goes up from the equator. It's got, you got that, that, uh, the ecliptic, mm. you know, and it goes up and what do we have? We have the Tropic of Cancer when yep. it goes up and then it goes down to the, the Tropic of Cancer, uh, of Capricorn. Yep. So it's like all within those two tropics and along the equator, this all shows up all these, um, pyramid like things and these temples and and all these stories come from all along those areas all across the world. Yeah. All and, at the same times and different times. Well, and when I mentioned the dragon lines before, so dragon lines are actually what the Japanese call the ley lines or the Earth's magnetic grid. And you have these like, you know, basically these longitude latitude lines and all of these uh, megalic, uh, megalithic structures and all these things are built along those lines. They're like in parallel. They're on the actual lines. Yeah. That's basically impossible. I don't even know if we could do it today. Yeah. We would need oh, some yeah. hardcore technology to try and build pyramids on the same exact longitude and, yeah. la- and latitude lines. Some serious intuition. Uh-huh. Or some or, crazy knowledge just given yeah. to us. Or an angel came to them. So all of these cultures, right? So we had Egypt, Mexico, Peru, much of the Middle East, all of Southern Asia, right? All of these cultures sculpted similar artifacts and inscriptions portraying these beings and their various craft used to travel here. Distant, uh, distant links can be found in the progression of these ancient human civilizations advancing and also the designing of relics showing these gods who influenced them. This forgotten relationship and the entire history of where we came has been heavily suppressed and why? Mm. So, and I'm about to finish up here with this because it's not that, I mean, you could go all day with the ancient cultures and all that. And these stories are right. And it's, you know, do your homework. It's, there's so much you could look up uh, about the, the worshiping of the gods in all these cultures. So the orientation of these great pyramids on earth, exact mirrors to the placement of the stars in Orion's belt. This similar theme can be found with ancient pyramid structures all over the planet. And this integral design utilizes the earth's natural energy centers to create a healing and knowledge center. By uniquely designing the pyramids to mimic the harmonic frequency of human beings, we can now begin to understand why the largest structures on Earth were created. 
These enormous healing centers were used by the ancient bloodline pharaohs of Egypt to extend their life as long as possible and rule the people who worshipped them. This ancient bloodline is the key to the true identity of these pharaohs of Egypt. By breeding with humans, as it's claimed in the what we are going into, into the story, uh, they had supposedly breeded with humans. The pharaohs of Egypt were the direct descendants of the Anunnaki, and we're going to discuss that. Thousands of years later, this practice of inbreeding and the obsession over bloodlines shows the intrinsic need of these ancient visitors to preserve their DNA. And I know we've all heard yeah. about the royal bloodline, the Illuminati, the elite, hmm. the 1%. Yeah. And it it connects. It connects to this and it would make it it would really you know, they're so worried about it because when you do read about it, they, they are. They have to marry within the same, you know, they never change. It's always the same yeah. bloodlines. And uh heirs to the throne and uh even even breeding with their own cousins and ugh. stuff like that. Yeah. That's it's all for a purpose. Right. So you know, we got thousands of years later and the practice Basically, of inbreeding, like you're saying, mm-hmm. and this obsession is, it's it's to preserve this DNA, according to what I'm reading here. So, further evidence for these visitors can be clearly seen in the largest of these pyramids, known as the Khufu, K U, or sorry, K H U F U, Khufu. A lot of moves. A lot of moves. <laughs> Where there are two important rooms, which were built, called the King and Queen's Chambers. I recall the Giza pyramids having the same rooms. These large chambers represent the embodiment of Osiris and Isis on Earth and their worship from the human race. They provide detailed star maps showing the precise locations behind the ancient lineage of the past. The king's chamber contains two long vertical shafts, which align exactly with the constellation of Orion's belt, like I'd said, and it also aligns with Alpha Draconis during the winter solstice of that time period. Mm, Long shafts. Long shafts. (laughs) Alpha Draconis is revered as the original North Star before Polaris replaced it in modern times. Beside the king's chamber lies the queen's chamber, which also contains two long vertical shafts, Mm -hmm. which point directly to the stars Sirius and Ursa Minor. These ancient star alignments honor the many realms of the gods who came from beyond Earth and the unique symbolism found within each chamber that speaks volumes about our forgotten Mm -hmm. history. I find it hard to believe that this is just some mainly just supposed to be some symbolic thing, you know, that's, you know, paying some sort of homage. Like, yes, it can be, but like, I really feel and see that as being some sort of, uh, having some sort of energetic resonance with, you know, how, you know, these things are lining up and how these things are set in place a certain way in a specific way, uh, you know, to, to embody this, real divine godlike type um, structure. Right. Well, and evidence does show that the pyramids of Giza were built to create a large structure that could focus and harness unlimited electromagnetic energy. It's one of the main theories. And it would also be used as a harmonic resonator, as I said before, meaning kind of like retuning the earth and the frequency of the planet for people to raise their consciousness. Mm -hmm. And this engineering was possible only because of a specific understanding of the precise ratio of the earth as well as those ley lines or dragon lines if all of this is placed over ten thousand years ago you know how could that even be possible yeah well ten thousand yeah Yeah. and a lot of you know that people say like the pyramids were uh were tombs well if you do your homework pyramids were not tombs 
And uh, I know this because the if you read about the emperors where they were actually buried, it was 400 miles south in the Valley of the Kings. You can look up uh, Ramses and Tutankhamun. They were built in the Valley of the Kings. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we, we like to really stick the whole alien thing in this. Uh, I mean, shit, with all of the measurements and everything being so exact, obviously, uh, this precision came from this, you know, advanced technology. Um, the Temple of Seti in Abydos, Egypt, it provides more evidence to show advanced sophistication of an ancient civilization and their achievements because the temple actually contained hieroglyphs that portrayed modern vehicles, including helicopters, submarines, and even a plane. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. So it is suggested probably around 12, I'll just say 12,800 years, uh, there, were, there were devastating cataclysms. Well, uh, evidence shown through the cuneiform tablets, uh, the ice core samples and other geological events across that, that all of this w- was obviously possible, but it was, it, it was hard for all of it to make it through. So if you were wondering if there was all this technology, well, where did it go mm-hmm. and why wouldn't it work anymore? Or where's yeah. all the evidence is because we had those great cataclysms. Well, well think about it. This, if today it, with where we're at with technology, if something catastrophic was to happen and knock out the memory of, all our shit that we put on clouds and knock out our 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 power it's sources big fear of mine, and dude. Wi-Fi and all this shit and all this connection. You guys and, fear CV. I fear that. Yeah, it'll pretty much set us back to the fucking Stone Age almost. Like you know, it'll bring us back to uh, maybe not Stone Age, but the Iron Age. You know what I mean? Like all these things would get lost, and that's what seemed to have happened in the in these other parts of time and why there's been these drop-offs in civilization and it seems like there's like all of a sudden this evidence of of a sudden emergence of new civilization and stuff because it's like almost like there are certain holders of the truth and certain holders of the knowledge you know and that's where you see these mystery schools come up in all these certain areas between Chaldea, the whole modern day, Iraq, what's modern day Iraq, Egypt, even the Mayans, you know, that whole area. It's a lot, man. Yeah. Yeah. Insane. Mm-hmm. So, um, so also going off that, um, uh, there's, there's four other anomalies, um, as far as in our solar system that could kind of go along to with, you know, this, the Sumerian stories and the tablets. Um, the first one I want to go, go into uh, is the asteroid belt anomaly. And in the 18th century, before Neptune was discovered, many astronomers demonstrated the planets were placed at certain distances from the sun. According to some definite law, the suggestion came to be known as Bode's law and convinced astronomers that a planet ought to be revolving in a place where uh, hitherto, no planet has been known to exist between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. This is where the asteroid belt is and is a mashup of rocky minerals and frozen water. And what do we say about the asteroid belt and the anomalous? It's the uh, hammered bracelet. It's, you know, called the hammer bracelet. We've depicted, you know, it's been depicted as that. And that's also said to be where Tiamat resided, the big icy frozen, oh, partially frozen, just mostly water, um, uh, celestial body. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dwarf planet series, uh, which is at least in part a giant ball of frozen water also resides there. 
Um, astronomers believe it may even have more water than Earth. Uh, so, but with the amount of rocky mineral and water in the belt, it doesn't seem to have enough matter to fill even uh, three quarters of Neptune's uh, of, of a Neptune-sized planet. The amount of mass in the belt is only about four percent of the mass of the Moon, which leaves a lot of matter missing. Um, and that goes along with the whole Tiamat story. But this can be because if this was the planet, uh, if this was a planet like Tiamat, it could have been mostly blasted out into space by a planet like Nibiru while, while only leaving some remnants behind and developing an orbit. Also, if we go off the theory of Nibiru's uh, orbit coming back through the belt over billions of years, each time on its voyage, it would have pushed and pulled more matter out of its orbit. Because in the past episode, we went over about the whole, uh, you know, the whole celestial battle between Marduk and Tiamat and cutting her in half and half was the heavens and uh, half became the earth and the asteroid belt. So there's there's that little theory about the whole um, about the asteroid belt. The next one would be the uh, moon anomaly theory. And um, there's a theory that the moon could have been created in some sort of mass collision, which is called the giant impact hypothesis. Uh, this suggests the moon was formed by the leftover debris after a collision between a celestial body the size of Mars and the Earth um, approximately 4.5 billion years ago. This theory goes on to state that the moon is uh, most likely made up of a combination of matter from Earth and the body that crashed into it. This is favored by many scientists and astronomers because the Earth's spin and the moon's orbit have very similar orientations, and the moon's uh, that and that moon sam samples indicate the surface was once molten. In the 1970s, there was all there also had been the discovery of water particles in these tiny glass beads from the moon left over from ancient volcanic eruptions. Ooh. These widespread deposits on the moon have led to the believing that water can be found within the moon. Um, and why is that part with, you know, Sumerian story? Well, we know, like we said about, you know, Kingu. Kingu was said to be Tiamat's uh, vizier and, you know, um, and one hand the, man. Yeah. And the planet aspect was its moon. And, you know, Tiamat had given Kingu the tablets of destinies and the tablets of destinies seem to be um, uh, depicted as having its own orbit. You know, it was given, uh, uh, you know, the ability to rule or something like that. And, you know, that's how we could see like with um, the whole, you know, crashing into Tiamat and uh, hitting its own and Kingu when it leaves Tiamat and along with, you know, Nibiru's moons coming in and stuff. And then eventually it forms it's it forms around that other half of Tiamat. So there can be that little correlation there. The next is the Pluto anom um, the Pluto anom anomaly. Scientists today have no solid explanation of why Pluto's orbit is so irregular. While most planets travel along the same plane in a near circular ellipse, uh, Pluto's orbit is significantly wider and doesn't travel on the same plane as the rest of the planets and moves on an angle, thus dipping below and over the celestial plane. It's actually where Hades comes from because uh -huh. he travels so low below to the, the underworld. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so it has been suggested that Pluto is part of the Kuiper belt, as explained earlier, but nothing has been definitely proved, uh, been proven. The interpretations of the Sumerian tablets seems to fit what we 
a C as Pluto and its orbit nowadays because it is said in the story how Anshar, which would be Saturn, sends its vizier Gaga to Marduk uh, to kind of inform him of, you know, this thing that needs to take place with uh, with Tiamat. Um, and this can be depicted as Nibiru making its passage towards Saturn and changing the orbit of one of Saturn's moon. And and this goes along with the scientific theory and suggestion that Pluto can possibly be what once was a moon of Saturn that strayed away because of some sort of celestial event. There you go. And then finally, the last is the, um, this theory comes from the, uh, it's the electric universe theory. So the Thunderbolts project is the collaborative voice of the electric universe theory movement that was established in 2004. This theory describes the entire universe as being electrically connected. It explains that the sun isn't actually a nuclear fission reactor as we believed, but is essentially a massive electric ball of plasma powered by these galactic electrical currents that spiral out through the arms of the galaxy in a pattern that looks very much like Fibonacci. We can see stars, uh, we can see this as like stars uh, are streetlights drawing energy from power lines where the power plant is the galactic center. So this electri- uh, these electrical currents create not only stars, but all forms of material bodies from small hard asteroids and planets to giant balls of gas like Jupiter and Saturn. The theory describes that these gas giants are far more connected to stars than we realize, uh, though, because if they are in alignment with the cosmic electrical lines, they can ignite into a star just like a light bulb filament, which becomes red hot and glows when you run power through it. So fundamentals of the electric universe theory transcends our perspective of the entire universe. And in many ways, the model makes a lot of sense. It's likely that this was the understanding that Tesla had when he designed and constructed his amazing technologies of alternating uh, currencies, Um, alternating current. I don't know if currencies would be the right word, but uh, but what's especially interesting about the electrical universe theory is that it's a diverse approach to cosmology. On one hand, we see these theoretical physics explaining natural phenomenon with electricity, which is its which is its own uh, definitive exploration. And on the other hand, it attempts to take into account the mythos of the world. And I hypothesize how the electric universe theory fits into our ancient history. They make note that there are a number of ancient stories around the world describing, like what Ray was saying before, the battle of the dragon which of course includes Tiamat and Marduk. To them, it all begins with Earth, Mars, and a brown dwarf star. There are a lot of variations available, but I'm going to cover the basics here. Yeah, I heard uh, the, there was another theory with a brown eye mm-hmm. star. Brown, I think. An asshole? I think so. Yeah, let's fucking. I got a brown dwarf star for you. Yeah, this brown brown eye needs to shoot out a a chocolate chocolate starfish. (laughs) Carry on. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, this is this is the uh, the Gemini. (laughs) All right, Uh, (laughs) there's a lot. So, like I said, there's a lot of variations, but I'm going to cover the basic idea. The theory begins by suggesting that not long ago in Earth's history, 
we had an entirely different sun that was a brown dwarf star, which was a free-floating activated gas giant moving through space on its own. So a brown-eyed star with a lot of gas. Yep. That sounds like me on a, uh, after a nice... Uh, <laughs> Some sushi? Yeah, I was just going to say that. Holy Whoa. shit. That's crazy. <laughs> um, am I that predictable? Fuck. <laughs> Jesus. Um, so along with Mars, we traveled with it, held to its orbit by a strong electrical uh, electromagnetic field, most likely held underneath it in a fixed position. It's been explained how this works using Birkeland occurrence, uh, which you know, look it up what Birkeland occurrence is. It's just um, the whole it goes along with the whole um, planet staying in place because of uh, and gravitational pulls because of this uh, electricity exchange of everything being connected. We were at the perfect distance for life to grow naturally and both Mars and Earth were radiated with warm glow. Once again, this is all theoretical according to the electric universe um, uh, theory. Um, It's possible that even Mars had life at this stage in its history. As our star traveled through space, eventually it came into the vicinity of a different solar system with a much larger star approaching at about 24 degrees to the ecliptic. When our small star came close enough into the field of this new star, it caused the brown dwarf to short circuit and released its electrical charge, which also caused it to release gravitational hold on the Earth and Mars. As this was happening, the dwarf star went through some extreme changes. Its electricity was going haywire, turning off and on, losing its energy, and it began discharging a huge amount of matter. The largest of all was a massive body of fiery material, uh, material which would become the planet Venus. When it's ditch, when it discharged, it came out with sort of a backward kick, explaining why Venus has uh, a reverse rotation spin than all the other planets. Um, it is believed that it would have emerged out as a fireball with a greenish hue. Keep that in mind, greenish hue, but would eventually cool and solidify into the Venus we know today. Uh, much of the other matter that it discharged may have even stayed in the orbit of the gas giant, giving it several large rings. What happens is pretty extreme, but imagine being on the Earth as it topples through space into a new solar system, looking for a sustainable orbit with the inhabitants not knowing if they were going to survive or or not as the universe whirled around them and only really seeing stars for the first time once free of the warm glow of the previous star. Wallace Thornhill, the chief science advisor for the Thunderbolts project, estimated that the transition from one sun to another would have taken about 300 years. As for Venus, it began acting as a comet uh, hurtling through the solar system, and then something catastrophic happened as Mars and Venus gravitated dangerously, dangerously close to each other. A massive discharge of electricity exploded between the two. These planets would have been fairly close to the Earth in proximity, and this event would have rained lightning and massive rocks down to our Earth. This relates with a few things mythologically. It theorizes maybe this is why the goddess or feminine was often associated with the green, uh, with green and masculine and warrior deities with red due to the color of the stones crashing down from the from each planet. That's an interesting little 
theory right there. There's also many ancient myths describing a goddess raining fire or destruction down from the sky, such as Anana in Sumeria and Hathor in Egypt and Kali in India and many others. This can also be a theory as to what may have blown away Mars's atmosphere. As for the dwarf star, as it short-circuited and lost its energy, it would have cooled down and could have become a gas giant, which in turn could be what we know as Saturn. In this way, this could also describe the Sumerian tablet stories of Tiamat and Marduk, where Tiamat would be Venus and Mars would be Marduk. This then would take away from the theory of Lamu and Lahamu uh, being Mars and Venus. And this, a lot of moves. Yeah, a lot of moves. And this also would take away from this whole theory of this theory of, uh, of planet Nibiru. But like we said, it's, an, it's interesting and fun to explore and contemplate. And who knows? We also said how it doesn't necessarily have to be a planet. It could be a star. Um, as it has been depicted as that on many Sumerian tablets and artifacts, like I said before, or Nibiru can be a place in space like the galactic center. As always, we invite you to ponder on this and we'd like to know what you think and if you have any ideas or correlations on the theories and everything. So, I mean, that's the other thing too, when we're talking about the whole Venus uh, thing, you know, Venus is known as the morning star. It's also known as Jesus and Lucifer and Lucifer. And that, you know, makes us see between what we know as the planets, even astrologically and Jesus and Lucifer, it's the beneficial and the destructive qualities, which like it made, it was beneficial for our solar system in this theory. Um, but it also was very destructive as well. Um, one other thing that's, that's funny about with this theory that is, is that earth, Mars, Venus, and Neptune all have similar degree tilts. Like all are like 22, 23 degrees. Like they're all very similar. Like, so that's, and it's, it's, it's just those four planets. So it kind of goes along with that whole thing of how they would have came about in this electric universe theory. Yeah. And there's a cause and effect for everything. And obviously there's a pattern going on there. Yeah. So the fact that there's a pattern, there's something to be noticed and it still hasn't been solidified why these things are. And this is probably one of the best, best explanations you're going to get so far. Mm -hmm. So, Follow the patterns always. Yeah. You have these tilts, you have the way these planets are positioned and all that. And then on top of it, you have these mythologies and you have these stories being told and they start to align. So whether we have it or not, you know, uh, when it comes to figuring it out, you know, do we have it or not? Well, at least we have a direction and we're just in that pivotal moment of discovering, like then we're waiting for the next best thing to, uh, to show us the truth. Yeah. So very, all very crazy. And the thing is, is uh, I, there's a lot of stuff I personally can't wait to go into when it comes to the discovery of stars and what it means when it comes to biblical stuff. Yeah. And uh, we have a lot more to go with the Anunnaki. Mm -hmm. And on the uh, on the next episode, I mean, so we we've basically have talked about, you know, the existence of Nibiru as either a planet or a character or both. Yeah. But now we we're gonna want to go into when this planet or this, so if the Anunnaki is from Nibiru and they're from this planet, why do they come here? Yeah. And like we said earlier about if they had some sort of, um, uh, hostile, uh, you know, environment 
that was happening to say their planet or whatever their abode was, um, you know, what kind of conflicts could have arose for a, let's just say civilization like that for, you know, for them. And in the way Stitchin uh, describes and transcribes the tablets, uh, he, you know, he says about the fact that um, because of, and which we said this already in previous episodes, but I just want to remind you because going into the next thing, um, you know, it's said that Nibiru, because of its 3,600 year orbit and how it goes, it goes really close to the sun. And we also know it to be very volcanic and also, the sun helps when it comes in from that orbit, it was said to help um, activate those volcanoes and everything in the volcanoes. You would think, oh, that's bad. Like, no, it actually apparently was helping their atmosphere because it would block out the harmful radiation when coming so close to the sun because it was such a big planet, apparently, that um, that the, the, the atmosphere starts deteriorating. And this is from the planet perspective, starts deteriorating. But then when it moves away from the sun, it takes a long journey away from the sun. And with a deteriorated atmosphere, that means that whatever heat was absorbed and farther away from the sun, it does not stay, uh, you know, at a sufficient uh, warmth and it gets really uh, cold, I guess you could say, but that could be even allegorical, that whole, it's too cold and everything and, and stuff like that. So with that coming on, you know, the console of gods, uh, said in the, in the, in the new militia was that they were looking for a way to possibly, uh, correct this. And, um, you know, the two main, the two main, uh, uh, gods that are put in charge of this task, uh, tend to be Enlil and Enki, the sons of Anu. So when they're given this task, um, there's also uh, somebody else who comes into play with this story. It's uh, Alalu. Alalu is said to be, you know, another god, and he's like some sort of distant, um, distant descendant of this royal bloodline. Um, and so is Anu, though, and Anu was named king. And they have a conflict over it, and Alalu wants to correct the action of the atmosphere by um, using some sort of what Stitchin depicts as some sort of nuclear power, um, which it's coined and and he translated as uh, weapons, of, uh, weapons of terror, he says in the Anu Malish. And... They, he wants to use this, but there's a lot of um, there's a lot of controversy around that because, you know, they thought that it was like, no, not good. You're using this crazy nuclear power. You could destroy our planet. And, you know, we say the same thing with our own planet nowadays. And we see how we just said our atmosphere is, you know, we have a lot of uh, climate issues and same thing with our magnetic field. And it's almost like we're it, like the story like repeats it repeats what we're dealing with now in a way. And so with this conflict, Alalu and Anu, not only that, it said that Alalu uh, wanted to have the throne and that he was the rightful heir. And they end up duking it out, Anu and Alalu, they end up duking it out. And eventually um, uh, Alalu loses to Anu and he's exiled um, and he was supposed to be killed or something like that. But he ends up leaving and he follows the orbit. Uh, he leaves on his spaceship, so to say. 
That's how Stitchin's theory is. Uh, he leaves on his spaceship and follows the orbit of Pluto to come to this um, this story of this place that was formed, which would be Earth. And he goes to it, and nobody's nobody's been there from the Anunnaki. And he goes there, and he lands. Um, and we'll go we'll go further into that story, but the whole fact is that he lands there. Enki and Enlil back on Nibiru are looking to figure out a way to be able to uh, restore order uh, back in Nibiru and its atmosphere and everything. So uh, apparently whatever scientist Anunnaki had that they decided um, that they could use gold to be uh, crushed into a fine powder and released in the atmosphere to reflect the harmful radiation and to also seal up the atmosphere to keep it warmer during those months. And why gold? Because gold was lighter um, and uh, gold was very great against radiation and also was less toxic, apparently, and stuff. And we also see how, you know, a lot of uh, 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 space crafts and, and satellites are are wrapped in like this gold foil uh, for that same reason. So it's it's pretty interesting when it comes to that. Uh, so when that happens, they're looking on their own planet. They don't find it. And whatever planets they're able to uh, view and observe in their solar system or nearby solar systems, they look. And it is ended up being said through their own story of Tiamat and Tiamat. You know, the, the blood of Tiamat uh, was gold and you know, and it created some sort of uh, of planet that had this gold um, and they knew to go. They, they needed to find it, but they couldn't find it. What happens is while Olalu back at being exiled to Earth, what he does is he is exploring Earth. We'll talk about where he apparently lands and everything. Um, the story is pretty detailed in this fashion. And he... Uh, goes and he finds and he's testing out things. He has probes on whatever his thing is and he's testing shit out. And then finally, eventually he ends up finding, he's looking for the gold and he finds gold and he reports back to Nibiru and he asks that he can come back to Nibiru. Now that I found the gold, you know, you have to take me back and everything. And they, they do. And, um, and also that's when, uh, uh, that's when Enlil is, is kind of like the overseer of this thing. But Enki is the one who kind of deals with the, uh, the, the, the happenings on earth and this whole commission and mission start between the gods to start mining for gold in order to restore their atmosphere. Yep. Yeah. So going into that now, next episode, uh, we're going to go further in how that all develops and uh, see what kind of evidence supports that or or doesn't support that. What kind of things uh, do we see between when we're referencing back to the translations of the Sumerian tablets and um, and then how this turns into more of, you know, uh, more detail about the Nephilim, the Watchers, the first Anunnaki that apparently came to Earth and what happened with them and the life that was already on Earth and which eventually leads to the creation of human beings. So. On that note. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So 
as always, you know, go go to our website, join our page. Don't forget to share, like, follow, as always. Um, and we'll be back with more. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Take care, y'all. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 